So like Jeff mentioned, uh, we're on the last piece of our identity of who we are as a church. So I uh, went through Jesus-centered the first month, what it means that we are centered around the person and work of Jesus. Second week was family, what it means that the church is a family and should be a family. Um, and so we're on the last piece this week, which is that we are on mission. Um, so I want to get to unpack kind of what we mean by mission. I know that's a word that depending on how much background you have in church or whatever could mean a whole lot of different things. Um, and so just wanted to kind of unpack what does it mean that we're on mission um, overall. And so I wanted to start just by kind of following the idea of mission uh, all the way through the Bible. I'll be fast, but that's what we're doing. We're starting in Genesis and going to kind of look at uh, what it means that God's people have always been on a mission. So I'm going to do it kind of in three stages. Uh, the first one is garden, second one is Israel, and the third one is church. That's kind of the order we're going to follow um, when it comes to understanding what God's mission is. So to start off, um, our mission starts in the Garden of Eden. So uh, God puts Adam in the garden, and it kind of talks about how there's all this uncultivated potential. It says that um, there is, there's greenery, but it's kind of all in chaos. And so God puts Adam in the garden and he says, hey, your job, he says, is to, quote, work the ground and keep it. Um, so it's this idea that God does bless Adam by putting him in the garden and giving him all this, you know, untamed creation to enjoy. But Adam, it's not, his role is not just to enjoy it. It is to enjoy it, but God also gives Adam a mission. He says, your mission is to take the blessing that I've given you by giving you all this land and all these raw materials, and I want you to actually make something out of it. I want you to turn creation into something that blesses the rest of creation. So from the very beginning, you could say that Adam had a mission. He had something he was responsible for. He had a purpose. Now fast forward to Genesis 12. So famous passage in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And then he says, I'm going to bless you. But the, it, the sentence doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to bless you for what? So that you can be a great nation. Blessing. There you go. I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing is what it says. Um, so again, with Abraham, um, oh, nice. Hey, Tom. Um, so with, so with Abraham, oh, Jeff, I need to turn this down. Didn't know that they were going to be talking back to me. Um, um, all right. So with Abraham, uh, then it's kind of the same thing. God, God gives, God blesses Abraham. He blesses the nation coming from Abraham, but it's not just, Hey, I'm going to bless you, period. It's, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the nations, to, to the entire rest of the world. And so, um, again, it's this mindset that God's blessing was not meant to terminate on us, but instead that we would be a conduit through which God blesses the rest of the world. Um, so again, Abraham gets a mission. Um, and then we fast forward to the church. So I want to actually read this passage from 2 Corinthians 5. If you want to turn in your um, Bible app to that, you can. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17, um, Paul begins to describe what the mission of the church is. And it goes like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. 
All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Um, so again, what, what Paul's saying here is that uh, God has blessed us with reconciliation to God. He's given us that blessing of relationship with him. But the goal is not that reconciliation with God would terminate on us. He says we've been reconciled to God and then given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled and now we're reconcilers. Um, and that's kind of the picture. In fact, reconciled in order to reconcile sounds a lot like blessed to be a blessing. What Paul is doing is kind of rephrasing this ancient blessing that God gave to Abraham and this ancient purpose that God gave to Abraham, and he's kind of putting it in its new context of the church, that we were reconciled to God, and now you and I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So with all of that in mind, um, remember the definition that we had of the gospel from back in August? Anybody want to take a stab at it? You could also flip back in the binder. It might be. Can I have to reteach that whole thing again today? Man. Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. Nice. Yeah. Jesus through his life, death, death, and resurrection is putting the world back together. And so if that's the definition of the gospel, I would say that the definition of mission is like it. Um, mission is joining God and putting the world back together. Mission is joining God in putting the world back together. It's realizing that we've been reconciled in order to be reconcilers, that we've been blessed in order to be a blessing. The, the whole idea with who we are as followers of Jesus is that God blesses us not just so the blessing terminates on us, but that it's a means to an end, that God blesses us so that we might bless the rest of the world, that we're the... We're the means through which God blesses all of creation. So, um, with that being said, uh, I want to just point out one thing before we move on to the next section. So, in that passage from 2 Corinthians, in verse 18, it says that Christ reconciled us to himself and, quote, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I want you to notice how quick that turnaround is. Paul does not even start a new sentence. He says, hey, you, you are reconciled to God, and now you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Paul does not say that you've all been reconciled to God and some of you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. He says every single one of us that have right relationship with God through the gospel are now given the ministry of reconciliation. Translation, every follower of Jesus is a missionary. Every follower of Jesus is a missionary. So mission is not something reserved for superstar Christians. It's not reserved for Christians that have been to seminary. It's not reserved for Christians that have been following Jesus for decades. Uh, mission is something given to every single one of us. Uh, the, the late, great uh, Charles Spurgeon said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Um, which is his famous quote about mission. And what he means by that is, by having right relationship with God, by becoming a Christian, you therefore become a missionary. It doesn't require a special gift set. It doesn't require that you have certain spiritual gifts. It, it just requires that you be reconciled to God. That's what it takes to be given the ministry of reconciliation. So that's a very, very quick flyover of what the mission of God is. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Cool. All right, with that said, I wanted to address one thing that I think um, sometimes people get mixed up on when it comes to mission. 
Um, so from the very beginning, we can even think back to Genesis 12, where God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you so that you can be a blessing. Was, was God saying that Abraham by himself was going to be a blessing to the world around him, or was he was saying that the nation that came from Abraham was going to be a blessing? The nation. And that hits on something that I think is very important to understand the mission of God. God's method of operation has always been that there would be a group of people on his mission. Now, I know that's different because a lot of times in our mind's eye, when we think of what a missionary is, it's easy to envision it as a, as a solo endeavor. Um, but God's design has always been for a group of people to be on his mission. And let me, let me show you why I think we sometimes believe that it's solo. So very popular passage in Matthew chapter 5 that talks about what it means to be um, on mission. Um, you guys have probably heard this before. It's in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that you may see, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, if you grew up in church, you know that there's a very popular song based on this passage. Sing it. Does anybody uh, want to sing it for us? This little light of mine. I think it, I think you needed a little bit more tone and rhythm to that yeah, one. Though. Good. Well, so even say, so even saying the words, this little light of mine, right? But look back at the passage. Is is this talking about an individual light, or is it talking about a communal light? And even look at the the next sentence right after it. A city set on a hill. How many one person cities do you know of? That'd be like a tent on a hill, right? Not a city on a hill. So. The way that we've interpreted this verse into a children's song, and I'm fine with the children's song. I think it's a helpful song to teach kids to be a light for Jesus. But it shows how we've taken a passage that talks about the communal witness and the communal mission of Jesus, and we've actually turned it individualistic into this little light of mine. That's why I would argue that we need a southern translation of the Bible, because this verse would read, y'all are the light of the world, and we would never get it mixed up. I'm still pushing for that. I haven't gotten anybody to buy that idea from me yet, but I'm working on it. Where's Brent right now? He'll be so happy. Y'all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the, the idea there is just that uh, God's mission is not an individual thing, but a communal thing. God's mission is not an individual thing, but a communal thing. Now, will there be moments where we are called to be missionaries on our own when we're the only believer at our workplace or uh, we're the only person in a certain group of friends that's a believer? Absolutely. There are ways to be a missionary on your own. However, the bigger context of the mission of God throughout the scriptures is always that God would have a group of people who are on his mission. And there's, I would even say, two separate reasons for that. Um, the first is that mission is easier together. Mission is easier together. So uh, imagine this scenario with me. What's up, dude? Um, so imagine this scenario, maybe. Uh, let's say, uh, hypothetically, that I go to K-Brew multiple times a week. That's actually a true part of this hypothetical. 
but we're at, I'm at K-Brew multiple times a week, and let's say I want to start building a relationship with one of the baristas there. His name's Kevin. Uh, I start getting to know Kevin. I'm striking up conversation with him when I see him, uh, and when there's not 50 people in line behind me, I'm like asking him how his day was. Uh, well, before long, I find out that Kevin is a huge Star Wars fan. Like, this dude's life just revolves around Star Wars. Well... If I'm wanting to develop a relationship with him and his whole life revolves around Star Wars, that's going to be really difficult for me because I don't know much about Star Wars. In fact, I think I'm a little bit too dumb to understand Star Wars. So I think that's part of the problem. But if, if that's what he likes and that's the thing that all of his life revolves around, I'm going to have a little bit of trouble as a solo missionary. But all of a sudden, I remember that my buddy Jason loves Star Wars loves Star Wars. Like the first time I met Jason, the first time I met Jason, all of his Tennessee stuff was not just Tennessee stuff. It was Tennessee stuff and Star Wars stuff. So it was like all orange, but a picture of Darth Vader. It was fantastic. Um, so I remember that Jason loves Star Wars. In fact, I, I remember that Jason already told me how on opening night he's going to go see the new movie. And so I'm talking to Kevin and I'm like, dude, my friend Jason loves Star Wars. He's going to see the new movie on opening night. Why don't you come with me and him and we'll go see the movie? And so we show up. Jason and Kevin start talking about Star Wars. My eyes just glaze over. I have no clue what they're talking about. But they're having a great time. And they're, they're just going back and forth on theories about the new movie and all of that. Well, before long, Kevin actually develops a friendship with Jason. And all of a sudden, Kevin doesn't just know me. He knows me and Jason out of our group. Well, later on, I'm at K-Brew again, getting my coffee. And I find out that uh, Kevin really wants to get into mountain biking. He, he's been wanting to do it for a while. He wants to buy a mountain bike, really wants to start doing it. Well, again, I'm not really into mountain biking. So I just hit a dead end there if it's all about me being a missionary. Uh, but, actually, it turns out this story is just about how boring I am. But I'm trying, I'm trying. So, uh, but I do remember my buddy Mike works at River Sports. He sells bikes. And so I tell my buddy Kevin, I'm like, hey, dude, you should go see Mike at River Sports. He'll hook you up with a bike. He won't rip you off. I don't think it'll be great. Uh, he, he would love to kind of show you the ropes when it comes to mountain biking. So he goes up to River Sports, buys his mountain bike. Him and uh, Mike get to talking. And uh, Mike's like, dude, actually, I'll show you some of the courses around here. I'd love to take you out and kind of show you around. So before long, do I? Trails, trails. yeah, yeah, courses, trails. Yeah, courses, courses, hyphen, trails. Um, so Mike's showing around before long. Kevin's actually got a friendship with me. He's got a friendship with Jason, and he's got a friendship with Mike. And so all of a sudden, maybe we have a cookout one night where, like, our, all the life groups are getting together, we're having a bonfire, whatever, uh, and I feel totally comfortable inviting Kevin because he's not just going to come and feel like he's got to be attached to my hip the whole time because he already knows two other guys who are there. He might have even had met their families. And so all of a sudden, Kevin shows up at this thing with our church, and he feels like a halfway integrated person into our community because he already knows these people. And, and then not all the weight of being a missionary is on my individual shoulders because mission was always meant to be communal. So first reason is that mission is easier together. The second is that mission is better together. Mission is better together. So not only is it easier to do when all the weight <laughs> of being a missionary is not on your own shoulders, 
it actually better communicates who God is when people see the way we interact with one another. So um, over and over again in the Bible, it's going to talk about how part of the way that people will know who God is is by the way that we love one another as a community. But let me ask you a question. If the only, per- if the only believer that a person who doesn't know Jesus knows is me, how are they going to know how we love each other as a community? There's, there's no way for them to know that. So, but if they're getting around this and they know Jason and they know Mike and they're hanging out with all of us together, well, all of a sudden they've got a front row seat to see how we interact with one another, how we love one another. And eventually that's going to raise some questions. If we're around each other and we're actually talking about real things in our life and we're confessing sin and they're getting a vantage point to that, eventually they're going to go, hey, why do y'all do that? Why do y'all talk about that kind of stuff? And that's when we actually have a great opportunity to share with them a little bit about who Jesus is. And, and that ultimately is the goal of mission. is not that we just start preaching at people from the get-go, but that we actually take the time to slowly build a relationship where they get a front row seat of how a community of Jesus interacts with one another. And eventually that's probably going to raise some questions. The more we pray through those relationships, the more those people are going to go, hey, tell me about this. Why do y'all do this? Why do y'all get together on this night? And what do y'all do there? And can I come? All of that is going to come up in conversation naturally. And then when we start to talk about who Jesus is and the work that he does in a person's heart, some some light bulbs are going to start to go off for them. And they're going to go, oh, that's why y'all talk like that. That's why y'all bring that stuff up with each other. And that's kind of the goal of mission. So mission is both easier together and better together. That makes sense? Any questions? All right, so lastly, kind of the last section um, of our teaching is um, I want to talk about how all of life is mission. I think one of the biggest pushbacks when it comes to helping people view life missionally is that you just run into this pushback that goes something like, man, I just feel like I don't have enough time to be on mission. Like, my life is busy as it is. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff going on. I've got classes. I've got a family. I've got a spouse. All of that. And it's just easy to go, man, I don't know where mission is going to fit into my schedule. And I think that's a valid question. Um, but what I want you to do is take that mindset, and I want us to contrast it with Acts chapter 17. So feel free to turn to that in your phones if you want to. Acts 17, I'm going to start reading in verse 26. In Acts it says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So Paul says in this passage that God intentionally, strategically laid out the times and the places that his people would live. The times and places that his people would live. And if if that's true, I don't think it's a stretch to assume that God also laid out where we would go to work, where our kids would go to school, what classes we would sign up for. He picked where we would go to lunch. All of those things. And if that's true, if, if God actually strategically laid out those things for us, then everything in our life just got infused with purpose. Everything in our life just got infused with purpose. Now everything counts. God put us where we are for a reason throughout life. So you work where you work because God wants you to be a missionary there. 
your kids go to school where your kids go to school because God wants you to be a missionary there. You go to lunch where you go to lunch because God wants you to be a missionary where you go to lunch. You go grocery shopping where you go grocery shopping because God wants you to be a missionary there. Everything we do, every place that we go on a regular basis, all of a sudden got infused with purpose. And in that way, mission is not so much something you add to your life as it is the purpose behind everything in your life. I think I said that differently than it is on the page. Mission is not so much something you add to your life as much as it's how you go about everything in your life. How you go about everything in your life. So mission all of a sudden is the purpose behind everything else. It's the lens that you see every part of your day through. It's how you understand the world because all of a sudden you understand that God has put you where you are, whether that's work, whether that's where you go shopping, whatever, for the purpose of mission. And here's what that means. God put those people that you're going to interact with there so that they might, quote from the, from the passage in Acts, so that they might reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God put certain people in your path because they're people who need Jesus. They're people who could use some help. Now, let me just clarify this a little uh, kind of quickly and, and tell you what I'm not saying. Uh, I'm not saying that God has you eating lunch where you're eating lunch so that you could leave a gospel tract instead of a tip on the table. Okay, that that's not mission. That's like anti-mission. Uh, I, I'm not saying that God has Hayden and Brian making videos at UT so that they can put like a Jesus fish and a Bible verse at the end of every video. That would that would actually be like a good way to get fired. That that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we use every opportunity we can to preach at people. I'm saying that God has us where we are for a reason, so that we might build relationships, that slowly building relationships that we just talked about in the last section, that is the heart and soul of what mission is. And it's not that we never, so there's a, there's a popular quote that people throw around a lot um, that's uh, preach the gospel when, preach the gospel always and when necessary use words. Uh, it's actually a misquote that was not said that way. Um, and, and here's the thing, with that quote, I get the idea behind it. I agree with the idea behind the quote, because the idea is, hey, show people the implications of the gospel and how you interact with them on a daily basis. That doesn't always require words. I get that. And eventually the gospel is good news, so it has to be proclaimed. So I'm not saying we never tell people who Jesus is. I'm not saying we never engage them on hard issues. I'm just saying usually you don't lead with that unless they're asking you start off with, hey, let me ask you how your life is going. Let me ask you how your day is going. Let me get to know you. Let me understand the type of things that you like to do. Let me understand the type of person that you are. And then let me invite you in our, into our community in a way that you can see how we do life. And eventually, I think that's going to raise some questions. And I'm going to get to explain to you why we are the way that we are. That makes sense? Um. All right, I think that's all for that section. That being said, there are two specific tools that I think God gives us in regards to mission. And there are way more than this. Mission is certainly way more than the two tools I'm about to say. Um, but I think these are two that are very central to being on mission um, as a follower of Jesus. And the first is hospitality. Hospitality. 
Um, so the idea of hospitality comes up over and over again in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. God's people are commanded to, quote, show hospitality um, to people around them. Now, I don't know that uh, hospitality is like a word that most Americans use in everyday conversation. So I want to spend just a second talking about what hospitality is. Um, so the Greek word for hospitality is philixenia. I probably butchered that, but I'm just going to go with it. Philixenia, and it comes from two separate words. The first one is philo or phile, which just means love. Um, and then the second word, xeno, means stranger or foreigner or outsider. So real simply, hospitality is just loving the stranger or loving the outsider. And so when the Bible over and over again talks about hospitality, um, it's, not that it, it's not that the Bible's not talking about inviting people into your home. It's just much, much bigger than that. Hospitality in the Bible is a, it's a mindset. It's, it's our ability to seek out the person that feels like an outsider, that feels like they don't belong, and welcome them in as an insider. So I think the way it's on the page is hospitality is the act of making an outsider feel like an insider. Hospitality is the act of making an outsider feel like an insider. So hospitality is that mindset when you look across the room and you see that person who you know feels out of place, feels like they don't belong, and you do whatever it takes to welcome them in to relationship and welcome them in to our community. Um, now, is that usually awkward to do in social settings? One, wow. <laughs> Extrovert Kyle over here is doing it. Yeah, I mean, for I would say for nine times out of ten when you do that, it's got some awkwardness to it, right? But what happens is when you, when you decide to embrace the awkwardness and actually go do it anyway, what you're communicating to that person is that my comfort in this situation is far less important than your comfort. I'm going to prioritize you feeling comfortable and you feeling like you belong here over my own personal comfort. And that's why God does incredible things through hospitality. Because it takes us going, you know what? It would be the easiest thing for me to just stay over here with my friends who are easy to talk to. We all like the same stuff. We're all in the same stage of life. It would be easier for me to stay over here. But I see a person who feels like an outsider, and that's not the right thing. So I'm going to go do something about it, even if it means it's a little bit awkward. That's the idea behind hospitality. So for our church to be marked by hospitality means that we constantly are scanning the room that we're in. We're scanning the social setting that we're in and going, who feels like an outsider right now and what can I do about it? How can I help them feel like they belong? Um, just to get real blunt about how this applies to our church family at this stage that we're in. Um, if you kind of look at all the people that belong to our church right now, uh, I would say that the, the, the group that makes up the biggest cross section of our church is young married couples and young families. Just if you, if you look out, if you combine those two categories, that's a big cross section of our church. So if that's true, who does that mean is going to most naturally feel like an outsider when they come around? What life stages? Single. <laughs> old people. Yeah. Yep, so older people. And then what would you say, Alyssa? Single Single people, younger people. I lump in college students in that category. Zoe just gave a loop. That was great. 
and, and I mean, you you probably could divide it up into more categories than that, but I'd say those are the big ones. So uh, single people, college students, and older people are most naturally going to feel like outsiders when they come around. They're going to most instinctively feel like, ah, I don't know if I belong here or not. So what that means is for us to be a hospitable church means that we are going out of our way to welcome those people in that those people, to some degree, are going to get a special preference when it comes to being invited to stuff, when it comes to being welcomed into conversations and relationships. We're going to go out of our way because we know that those people are going to most naturally feel like outsiders. That's what it means for us to be a hospitable church. That makes sense, the idea of making an outsider feel like an insider? Cool. I think Jeff and I, down the road, I think we've, we've been talking about this a lot. We, we really want to do probably like a whole teaching series on the idea of hospitality because it's just the more I read through the Gospels, it is just so central to how Jesus thinks and what he does and how he operates. But we just kind of wanted to kind of throw out the big picture of it there. So I'm sure we'll be nailing that down to more specifics soon. Um, now, with all that being said... Um, while hospitality is much bigger than just opening your home up, it's certainly not less than that. So we also want to talk about how, uh, what role that your home, your, your, the place where you live, plays a role in hospitality. Because certainly, if you're inviting somebody into relationship with you, to ongoing intentional relationship, it's going to be hard to do that without them ever being welcomed into your home. So um, I want to talk about what that looks like. And, and really the big idea behind this is that to welcome someone into your home is to welcome them into relationship. To welcome someone into your home is to welcome them into relationship. By opening our homes and sharing our dinner tables with people, we are communicating, I want a relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to know about your life and I want you to know about my life. And that's what we're going for. We, we want people in our city to constantly be invited into our homes to the point of where if you, even if your neighbors know that you're a follower of Jesus and they can't stand what you believe about God or they can't stand what you believe about morality or sexuality, our goal is that they would go, man, I really don't agree with them on much of anything, but they keep inviting me over for dinner. Like they just won't stop inviting me into their home. That would be our goal as missionaries in our city. Because what that's saying is it, it takes a relationship from somebody that just gets on your nerves or somebody that you is just a loose acquaintance with you and it actually begins to build it into something more where they feel like they belong in your life. And that's, the, that's kind of the significance that inviting somebody into your home can have. Um, now let me say one thing on this. When we talk about hospitality we are not necessarily talking about entertaining. <laughs> Hospitality and entertaining are not synonymous. Um, entertaining is about uh, impressing people. It's about making them think that you're awesome. So entertaining is about, uh, it's about people seeing your perfectly kept home where everything is put away in its proper place and everything is vacuumed perfectly. Uh, it's about them seeing your perfectly behaved kids that never start screaming in the middle of dinner ever, not once. Uh, it's about them enjoying your perfect cooking that should like be on TV, it's so good. That's what entertaining is. Hospitality is about people seeing your not-so-clean home. 
It's about people getting to witness when your kids start screaming in the middle of dinner and there's nothing you can do to stop them. It's about them tasting your okay cooking. That's what hospitality is. Because hospitality is about people getting a window into your actual life, not the one that you want them to think you have. Because it's actually about them getting to know you. So I think this is on the page. There's actually a, uh, we, we goofed on this blank on the page. Probably the next blank starts with entertaining. Cross out that word entertaining and change it to hospitality. Otherwise, this line won't make sense. Cross out entertaining and replace it with hospitality. Then it should read, hospitality isn't about impressing people. Um, Hospitality isn't about impressing people. Hospitality is about getting to know people. Hospitality is about getting to know people. But legitimately, I feel like so often uh, that puts a barrier up when we think that what in order to be hospitable, we've got to have like the perfect house, the perfect meal, all of that. It puts up this barrier where it's like, well, I don't know if I can be hospitable. I don't have enough time to clean the house. I mean, I, don't, I just don't know if that's possible. Now, feel free to pick up a little bit before people come over so they can like walk. Like that's a good thing. There you go. Yeah, get them to come over and be like, hey, we got dinner prepared for you, but I'm gonna need you to help me with a few things first. But so this was like uh, this. Was, this is actually I didn't think about this until you said that. But uh, the first time we had. Kyle and Jessica over for dinner. It was like we barely even knew them at all. We had them over for dinner, and we tried this new recipe that was supposed to be like, I mean, it was something like, it was like lime honey chicken. I mean, it looked amazing on Pinterest. It like, looked perfect. And we made that, and then we didn't have time to think about sides, so we did like, well, oh, I'll tell that in a second. So uh, we, we made this like delicious, it was supposed to be delicious lime honey chicken, and it came out, and it tasted like chicken with nothing on it. Like, it just tasted like cooked, baked chicken with absolutely no flavor. And then to make it worse, we didn't have time. We were, like, so concentrated on making this amazing Pinterest recipe uh, that uh, we ended up making white rice and corn as sides. The corn didn't get cooked all the way, and white rice is white rice. So it was like, I, so I told Kyle, I think at one point I just looked at him and I was like, I was like, we just wanted to welcome y'all into our house by making you this delicious no-taste dinner. Um, but what that was is it gave us the opportunity to actually get to know each other. So I, I would like to thank my horrible cooking, personally, for the success of the night. But that's just proof of like, what did you say? And so they haven't access, long story short. But, uh, but to me, that was a good example of, in my head, there was, a little, there was a little bit of a motivation of, I feel like I need to impress these people, rather than just, I need to get to know these people. That's my goal tonight, is get to know them. So anyway, special thanks to the Brunels for putting up with our horrible dinner. But um, that, does that kind of make sense, the difference between hospitality and entertaining? They're, they're not the same thing. And, and feel free to make it like a, a good environment when people come over. But your goal is not to impress people. Your goal is to welcome people into a relationship. And, I and, like, oh, go ahead. I'm I feel like if you, if whenever you go to someone's house and it's like totally spotless, there's not like a piece of dirt anywhere, it's really hard for people to feel comfortable. You're like, 
Yeah, I don't want to mess up anything. I'm sorry, I dirty up your couch while sitting in it. Absolutely. I feel like sometimes they can have the opposite effect. Oh yeah, no, it can actually by trying to be hospitable, you can actually create an unhospitable environment. I'm not saying you should have dirt everywhere. Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, feel free. Feel free to sweep real quick. Feel free to have like spaces that people can walk in your house. Like all of that is fine. But at a certain point, it becomes more about trying to impress people than welcome them in the relationship. And that's, that's not the heart of biblical hospitality. And ultimately, that ends up putting, putting up a barrier where we feel like we can't ever be hospitable if we view it that way. This is my, this is my else saying something. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, like, as a woman, like, if I go into someone else's house and it is, like, all together and, and their kids are ever, you know, just perfect, and it makes me, like, well, I'm a failure because my house is a wreck. There's pee on every toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, my kids never properly. So it's actually yeah. really easy. <laughs> 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 which I think is so important. Cool. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. Hospitality is kind of the first uh, tool that God gives us in regards to mission. The second one is generosity. <coughs> generosity. Um, so nobody really likes to talk about money, uh, but according to Jesus, how we handle our money is massively important. Um, massively important. In fact, uh, so Jesus talks about money more than he does about heaven and hell combined. Um, it's the second most addressed topic in all of Jesus' teaching right after the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of God is like all encompassing. So it's kind of interesting that money is the second one. Um, in the gospel of Luke, actually, uh, one out of every seven verses has something to do with money and possessions. Jesus talked about money a lot. And so the question is why, why did Jesus talk about money as much as he did? Why did it, get such priority in how he would talk to his disciples and to the crowds. Well, I think, this is kind of a hypothesis, I think a lot of it comes down to this one principle. In Matthew six twenty one. it says, For where, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I know most of you guys have probably heard that verse a ton of times. I think the reason that Jesus brings up money so much is because of that principle. And here's what he means. Jesus, Jesus talked about money so much because he believes that it's a direct window into what's going on in people's hearts. Jesus believed that by looking at what somebody spends most of their money on or spends money on most easily, 
you can get a direct view into what's going on in their hearts. You can get a direct view into what they care most about by seeing what they most easily spend money on. Now, um, so for example, this is uh, always the example that I'm embarrassed to share, but in our uh, household budget, the line item that I almost always go over on is food, eating out. And so what that tells you about me is that I care a lot about good food. I care a lot about eating, and in the past few years, it started to show a little bit, and it's, my budget shows it too, because that's where my money flows most easily to, is to food. There you go. Breakfast. Me and Kyle got breakfast the other morning at a diner. It was delicious. Delicious and horrible for us. Um, so uh, you get a window into what people care most about by looking at what they most quickly and easily spend money on, but here's, what you, here's what's interesting to me. This principle of where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, also works in, the, in reverse. It works the other way. So not only can you tell what somebody cares most about by what they spend their money on, you can actually start to change what you care about by changing where your money goes. Jesus says that money and possessions are so volatile. They have such a grip on our hearts that by changing what you spend money on and spending money on something else, you actually can start to change what you love most, what you care about most. So really, really silly example that I think Jeff made up uh, a while back. It's not silly because Jeff made it up. It's just silly in general. Jeff happened to make it up. Assume whatever you want. Um, But we use this in uh, financial counseling all the time with people. Uh, right now in my life, I could care less about Kraft Foods, the company. I just don't, other than they keep making delicious Instant Mac that I can buy at the store for really cheap, I just don't care about their company. Now, if I were to take $5,000 and invest it in Kraft Foods stock, would I now care about Kraft Foods? Absolutely. I'd be looking up who their CEO is. I'd be finding out what was happening at their board meetings, who's getting hired, who's getting fired. I'd add their stock to my ticker on my laptop. I would know what was happening with Kraft Foods because my treasure is now there. A big chunk of my treasure is now with Kraft Foods. Now, that's a really silly example. But what also happens in terms of how we care about the kingdom, the more we actually send our money to accomplish kingdom purposes the more we'll find that our heart is actually following it. The more we spend money on the things that God cares about, the more our heart will actually start to be strung along with it because that's how money works. Wherever your heart, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's the incredible thing about when that starts to happen. When we start sending our money to kingdom purposes and we start caring about things of the kingdom of God, what begins to happen is that God does some really, really cool stuff. God works through the generosity of his people. God works through the generosity of his people. Specifically here in America, where I would argue uh, the most uh, untalked about idol that we have is possessions and materialism. I think we're aware of the problems we have with sexuality and some of the stuff that gets a lot of press time. I don't know that many people talk often about our problems with materialism, especially here in America, where everybody wants more stuff and always wants more and more and more and wants to make more money and more money. And we want to keep all of our money for ourselves, and we don't want to be generous. 
a group of people that comes along and has no emotional attachment to their money, keeping it for themselves, looks radically different than the world around them. And that's what we're going for. So this is uh, a quote from Tim Keller. Um, He did some research on the early church, so um, the few uh, centuries right after Jesus um, was raised from the dead. And here's how he kind of summarized how the early church saw their money. And I just absolutely love this quote. Says the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the early Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. That's what Tim Keller says stood out about the early church is that they didn't have the emotional attachment to their money, they weren't stingy with their money like the world around them did. He said, in fact, they did with their money what the world around them did with their body. They just said, yeah, you need money? Absolutely, I'd love to give to that. I would love to help you in that way financially. They just had absolutely no emotional attachment to their money and possessions. You see this over and over again in the book of Acts where it says that people sold their possessions so that they could give to people in need. I think that was a big part of the fuel that powered the early church was just their absolute... uh, willingness to give and be generous to whatever needs there were around them. So with that in mind, uh, there's kind of two things. What, what does that mean for how we are generous? What does it mean that we as city church members are called to be generous? Well, um, for a city church member, we, we would say this looks like two things. Um, we'd say we can kind of break this down into two separate actions. Number one, we ask that every city church member set a budget for generosity. Set a budget for generosity. So kind of the rationale behind that is it's really easy to say, oh yeah, I'll be generous like when there's a need. When I find out that there's a need, I'll absolutely be generous. What's actually very, very different from that is planning to be generous, having it worked into your budget. Because we all know what happens if we say, oh, well, I'll, with, with our extra, I'll be generous. What ends up happening is we get to the end of the month and we've gone over on three different budgets and somebody needs something and it's like, well, I can't afford to be generous this month. So it's a whole different scenario to actually upfront go, nope, this is the money that's going to generosity. Now, whether that ends up being somebody that's in need and we just give them a check, whether that's somebody that needs some help buying groceries. And so we're going to give them a grocery gift card. Maybe that's just somebody that we've been wanting to build a relationship with. We take them out for dinner at a nice restaurant and we pay for all of it. It could look all kinds of different ways. Like I'm not saying every I'm not saying that that money needs to like go overseas to somewhere. Maybe it does, but the goal is just that you have a chunk of money that's going. That's that's not my money. That's not money that I'm going to use to cover expenses. That's money that I'm planning on going out the door to help somebody when there's a need. So we ask that you budget for generosity, and the second is that you tithe. That you tithe. <laughs> Tithe is just a fancy Bible word that means tenth. That literally means a tenth of your income. And so here's what we ask. If it's true that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And if it's also true that Jesus' primary means for advancing his kingdom is through the church, and that Jesus cares about the local church, which I would argue he does, we simply ask that that be a starting point for you in generosity. We ask that if, if you're passionate about what we're doing here and you want to see us be able to, as a church family, reach more and more people in our city, we ask that you, you try to 
tithe 10% to the local church. And just to be fair, if you were at another church, I would still say you should do that. That's not because we want your money. That's because Jesus actually says that the local church is how he wants to advance his kingdom. So that's what we ask. We ask that you do that. Jeff and I will tell you, neither one of us are getting rich. City Church is not getting rich on what you give. We just ask that you help us kind of fuel the mission. The reality is that ministry takes money to do. Um, and so we just ask that that be part of your heart for the local church is that you would tie it towards the local church. Um, now, with those two things in mind, uh, we know that everybody in here is in a unique scenario when it comes to finances. Um, so a lot of you just uprooted and moved. Uh, you just had to pay a lot of money for a moving truck and to get settled into a new home. You're adjusting to new jobs that maybe pay less or places to live that cost more to live. We know that all of that, we know that there's student debt and all kinds of debt and all of that stuff. So we, listen, we are not, we're not sticklers for this. We're not going to hunt you down and ask to see your budget. Uh, if you are currently in a place where either or both of those things just feel undoable to you, here's what we would ask. Just come talk to us about it. And the first question we're going to ask you is how can we help? That's the first question we're going to ask is how can we help you? We are, we will be fine without your tithe. We, we really will. But what we want to know is how can we actually help you learn how to be generous with your money and actually advance that treasure towards kingdom purposes? Because ultimately, we know that your heart's going to go with us. So Jeff and I have done financial counseling with people. We, uh, we're not super smart in that stuff, but we've been trained by people who are much smarter than us. And so we would love to sit down with you and even look at your budget and try to try to figure out how can... How can we actually free up some ability to be generous? But ultimately, we're, we're going to find out how we can help. We want to help you guys. Our job here is to serve you in all areas of life, and that includes your finances. So if that feels undoable for you, just come talk to me or Jeff. We'd love to help. Make sense? Cool. So um, those are two tools that I would say are pretty central to the mission of God and our ability to kind of carry the torch forward and be a blessing to the world around us. Um, so with that in mind, I kind of just wanted to, uh, here's the cool thing as a pastor, is that a lot of times individual things like our money and hospitality, a lot of times uh, you guys don't always get to see like the big picture impact of what that does. Um, and so I, I just wanted to end uh, tonight with a story of how we've seen this happen, how we've seen a lot of this stuff just kind of work in tandem to push the mission forward. Um, and so this came from uh, Midtown, the church that some of us came from. Uh, there's a guy named Landon. A lot of you guys know Landon. Uh, is now one of our pastors. But um, several years ago, he wasn't a pastor. He was just a normal guy. He worked as a photographer uh, in a neighborhood that was kind of a mix of like, uh, middle class and also lower class. And so uh, one day, Landon is just at his house. He's working on some photography stuff. Um, and he hears glass start breaking outside of his house. He's like, I feel like I should probably protect my family and figure out what's going on outside. So he walks outside, and there's a crew of kids. I, don't, I think it was about five or six kids at like elementary school age. Um, they were throwing rocks at an abandoned house and breaking all the windows. And so Landon is looking at him, and he's going, okay, cops are about to get called, probably going to be here any moment. Uh, maybe I should call the cops, too, and make sure the cops come. But he, he had a moment where he was just thinking, and he actually told me, he said, uh, I actually started thinking about Acts 17. He was like, I started thinking about how God puts you where you are for a reason, um, because people where you are may need to know about who Jesus is. 
And so instead of calling the cops, he invited these kids into his house. And he gave them, I think he gave them like some lemonade. He just asked them a little bit about who they are. Well, over the course of the conversation, he finds out uh, the reason that they are just walking the streets and throwing rocks at windows is because um, pretty much all of them, their, their mom worked double or triple shifts to try to make ends meet for the family. And there was no father figure in the picture for any of them. And so Landon looks at that situation and he goes, well, if my role as a follower of Jesus is to join God in putting the world back together, that scenario is not okay to me. That's unacceptable that they wouldn't have anybody who can actually help structure their time after school. So Landon starts inviting them into his home on a weekly basis so that he can mentor them and tutor them and they can actually get homework done. And so a central piece of it is that he knows inviting somebody into my home makes them feel not like a charity case, but like I want a relationship with them. So they're coming over. He's like uh, helping them with their math and their science and all of that. Um, well, eventually he gets to meet the mom and, and he gets to go, hey, here's what I'm doing. Uh, and she's so thankful for it. And she just asks, yeah, can they come over to your house three days a week? And he's like, I think we can work that out. I'm not sure, but I think we can do that. Um, so he opens up his home. He shows them hospitality, makes them feel like insiders. And then eventually Landon realizes, well, mission is not something I do alone. It, if ultimately it's on my shoulders for these five kids to be okay, that's going to be a problem. I'm not going to be able to withstand that. So he gets his life group. He realizes that pretty much everybody in his life group has free time on Sundays. And so he goes, what if we just play kickball with these kids every Sunday at the park? We just go right down the street, give them some good outside time where they're taking care of all that pent-up energy in a helpful way instead of throwing rocks at windows. What if we actually just start playing kickball with them? So Landon's whole life group once a week on Sundays is playing kickball with these kids and helping them understand uh, that they actually care about them, that they don't just want them to stop throwing rocks at windshields that are at windows. They actually, they actually care about these kids. Um, so eventually, uh, Landon finds out that we've got Go Camp coming up. Go Camp is like a summer camp that we did for kids that were in, I think, elementary school, middle school, and high school. Um, and he realizes, man, it'd be so cool if he, it'd be a good use of their time on spring break so they wouldn't get into trouble. But also, I'd just love for them to get to go to go camp and hear about the gospel. So uh, we bring it up to the whole church and we go, hey, we need these five kids to be able to go to go camp. It costs 250 bucks each. Is there anything our church family can do? Turns out one guy, there's actually one guy walked up and said, tell me how much it is for all five kids to go. I want to provide a scholarship for all of them. So these kids, through the generosity of this guy, get to show up uh, at Go Camp, and all of a sudden they start hearing about uh, about the God, the God who, through His Son's death, burial, and resurrection, is putting the world back together. And they start learning about what that would look like, and the light bulbs start to go off in their heads of. Oh, that's why these people cared so much about me, because they saw it as their role to join God in putting the world back together. Oh my gosh, I want that to happen for somebody else. They hear the gospel proclaimed, and I think three of them, two of them, three of them uh, become believers in Jesus at the camp. And it was all because, I mean, everybody in that story feels like they're doing something so small and insignificant, right? I mean providing scholarships might be the biggest one that just feels like this awesome show of generosity. But I mean, inviting people into your home, providing mentoring, like 
being able to play kickball with kids on a Sunday. Like that doesn't feel like you're doing some huge missional superstar type thing. That feels like you're just being where God called you to be and doing what he called you to do in the situation that he puts you in. And that's what mission is all about. The idea behind mission is not so much that you would be a superstar, that you'd have notches on your belt of all the people you led to Jesus. Man, if you did, that's fantastic. Praise God for that. But the goal is just that we would be faithful in the situations that he put us in. And it's amazing how God works through that type of stuff. Make sense? Any questions on mission? Stuff that's confusing to you about mission? Um, how about this? I'll pray for us, and then I think we've got some Bubba bags. Is that what we're calling them now? Campfire. Campfire. Bible packets pouch. There we go. Yeah. Well, we're, yes. Cool. Cool. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll hang out some. Um, Jesus, thank you so much um, that uh, you have called us to be on your mission. Thank you that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation. Um, God, thank you that your blessing doesn't terminate on us, but it actually um, gets to flow through us so that we can be a blessing to those in the world. Um, God, would you help us to just see um, our day-to-day life with the lenses of mission, that you've put us where you've put us for the purpose of mission, so that people who don't know you might reach out and find you, though you're not far from any one of us. Um, God, would you help us to see that um, it, it doesn't have to be extravagant, um, it, it can just be us being faithful and obedient where you've got us in our life um, and that you can do amazing things through that, that you can bring people into your family and help them understand who you are through the way that we love one another and by them being welcomed in um, as former outsiders. Um, so God, would you fill us with your spirit to be able to do that? And ask that in your name for your glory. Amen.